This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Princeton University Press, which has loads of great titles perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is To Build a Black Future by Christopher Paul Harris. When Black Lives Matter emerged in 2013, it animated the most consequential Black-led mobilization since the civil rights and Black Power era. Today, the hashtag-turned-rallying cry is but one expression of a radical reorientation toward Black politics, protest, and political thought. To Build a Black Future offers a revelatory account of a new political culture, responsive to pain, suffused with joy, and premised on care, emerging from the centuries-long arc of Black rebellion. Drawing on his own experiences as an activist and organizer, Christopher Paul Harris takes readers inside the movement for Black lives to chart the propulsive trajectory of Black politics and thought from the Middle Passage to the present moment. Harris reveals how the radical politics of joy, pain, and care, in sharp contrast to liberal political thought, can build a Black future that transcends ideology and pushes the boundaries of our political imagination. To Build a Black Future by Christopher Paul Harris, out now from Princeton University Press. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This episode is a recording of the live Dig interview that I conducted at this year's Socialism Conference in Chicago. It is, I'll assert, a really important discussion about organizing that gets at a number of important practical and also more theoretical questions that all of us who work as organizers are constantly trying to answer. Questions that we're trying to answer both through discussion and through practice, by trial and error, by testing hypotheses. It's an interview with three seasoned organizers, Alex Hahn, Astra Taylor, and Rachel Gilmer. This is also a useful conversation for you listeners who think and talk a lot about politics or maybe post a lot about politics, but haven't yet committed yourself to political struggle, to the spade work of organizing. If that's you, please give this a listen. And then find an organization where you can spend at least a few hours every week working to build the popular power that transforming this world requires. We can't do this without millions of people. And we can't get to those millions without people like you doing your part as organizers and leaders. And in other news, we can't put out this podcast unless listeners like you support The Dig financially at patreon.com slash the dig. Most of you can afford contributing $5 a month. Many of you, $10 or $20. But some of you can't. And the way this works is that we pay while nothing. We make every episode free for everyone because those of you who can afford to contribute do so. If that is you, if you can afford to contribute but you haven't yet contributed, please contribute now. Contributions of $10 or more will get you a book or books, a tote bag, or a mug, depending on where in the world you live. A contribution of any amount at all no matter where you live, gets you our weekly newsletter sent to your email inbox and the opportunity to ask guests follow-up questions that will, many weeks, be answered in our newsletter. Contribute now if you can, please. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Okay, here we go. Here's Alex Hahn, Astra Taylor, and Rachel Gilmer. 
Alex Hahn is executive director of In These Times and, before that, executive editor of Convergence magazine. But before the magazines, he served as Midwest political director for Bernie 2020, worked at Bargaining for the Common Good, served as vice president of SEIU Healthcare Illinois and Indiana, and helped to found United Working Families, an independent political organization in Illinois that has elected dozens of working class leaders to city, state, and federal office, including Chicago Mayor Brandon Johnson. Astra Taylor is a writer, filmmaker, frequent guest host on The Dig, and co-founder of The Debt Collective, the world's first debtors union. Her most recent of many books is The Age of Insecurity, Coming Together as Things Fall Apart. Rachel Gilmer is director of the Healing and Justice Center, a community-based public safety program in Miami working to reduce violence without the carceral system and build power for working-class Black people. Before that, she was the longtime co-director of Dream Defenders, a Florida-based Black freedom movement organization that's in the process of becoming a national organization. And for the purposes of this conversation, I should say that alongside hosting The Dig, which you probably already know about me, I also helped found and currently spend many hours a week helping to lead a statewide housing justice and tenant organizing group called Reclaim Rhode Island. Alex Hahn, Astra Taylor, and Rachel Gilmer, welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having us. Thank Thank you, you, Dan. To start off, what is organizing? This is a really basic question, but I think it's an important one to start with precisely for that reason. Organizing is so important, but I think it's understood, I think it's understood as a concrete practice, far less than it's invoked as this abstract necessity, like don't mourn, organize. It's invoked all the time. So what is organizing? And, and how is it distinguished from other forms of political activity that we might be engaged in? I mean, in, I think this is a, a very common distinction, but in 2016 or so, I wrote a piece for The Baffler called Against Activism. And I think it's kind of useful to maybe c- contrast between the two, right? Activism versus organizing. You know, um, in one way I think of it is that you can be an activist on your own. You can raise your voice, you can speak truth to power, you can tweet a lot (laughs) and call yourself an activist. You can't organize by yourself. To organize is, by definition, to work with others to build some form of collective power. When I hear the word organize, I think strategy. I think a vision of the horizon that you're working towards. I think numbers, right? You can't just do it by yourself. And I think durability. So it's about institution building, uh, in my mind, and creating a forum for people, a sort of block of power that can hopefully last, push to change both the ideological consensus and the the social arrangements, you know, the political arrangements, um, and also last through periods of backlash, you know, through tough times. Thanks, Astra. Alex, Rachel? Yeah, I, I mean, I would say it a little bit more simply, and I do, you know, I agree the distinction between activism and organizing is important, but organizing is really bringing people together around something that is shared, and that can be something that is forward-looking. I think it's important to keep in mind as well that it can be something backward-looking too. It can be about people's experience in history. It can be about how they are experiencing things in the moment. It can be around a vision of what things can look like in the future. I also do, and I think, you know, when we think about playing activism and organizing you know, thinking of those two concepts together. Activism is something that can be done collectively as well. And I think that's what helps to kind of muddy the water a little bit. Rachel. 
Yeah, just to add, I mean, organizing is the slow work of building power by building a base, bringing people together, developing their leadership, identifying community problems together, and then identifying solutions, and then working together to fight for them. And in terms of like the distinctions, I mean, this has been a challenge for Dream Defenders over the last 10 years. Um, you know, we were founded in 2012 after the murder of Trayvon Martin. And then, you know, a year later, we took over the Florida Capitol and um, were sort of surged into the public spotlight um, in this moment when a lot of young black people were becoming politicized. You know, we at that time were fighting for a suite of legislation called um, Trayvon's Law. And despite kind of having like the moral authority in the moment, despite having like, you know, I don't know, like it was at the, when Twitter first came, was on, you know, Twitter first was coming into fruition and we were, you know, blowing up on Twitter. Uh, you know, we had one of, you know, our founders were on TV talking about the movement, which we hadn't really seen before in our generation. But despite all of that, we actually didn't have the people power that we needed to win what we were trying to win. And, you know, by sitting in the Capitol, we saw the people in Florida that do have all this power. Like, you know, we're trifecta Republican control. We're um, private prison lobbies, incredibly powerful in Portland. The NRA is incredible, incredibly powerful in, 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 in Florida. Yeah, so it was really clear that, like, the difference between popularity and power and so when we left the Capitol, we made we made a, like an announcement that we were going to register 50,000 young people to vote, which was the amount Rick Scott had won his election by. And that we were like, we kind of made like a commitment to ourselves that if we were going to come back to the Capitol, it wouldn't just be like a couple hundred people, it'd be thousands of people, that that was the type of power needed to actually transform the state. And I think, you know, in spite of that like declaration, there's just been like a lot of challenges over the last 10 years with how to like actually build an organization that has a consistent practice around base building. Even though in our hearts, we knew that's what we wanted to do. There were still lots of challenges to actually make that a reality. Yeah. I mean, so precisely on that point around base building, when people talk about an organization having a base or about the broader left having, having an organized social base, what, what are we talking about? What, what does it mean for an organization or the left as a whole to have a base? And why is an organized base so fundamental to political organization and power? I mean, I think in the, a lot of the traditional thinking, we think of the working class as a formation and we think about ways to construct a base, you know, inside kind of a larger social construct, inside a larger, you know, group of people. I mean, I've got a lot of experience in the labor movement in which when we talk about social base, it's a very straightforward. It tends to be people who work in a workplace, people who work in an industry, people who do the same kind of work. Um, in a region. And I do think we have to be thoughtful about the ways that a social base can look different in different contexts, even contexts that are relatively close. And we have to think about kind of the different ways that that can function at different moments um, as well um, in history, different moments in kind of movement, activism, and organizing. Yeah, I mean, on the on the base building, again, I mean, maybe I just think in contrast too much, but, you know, the there is a tendency for there to be sort of nonprofit NGOs who run as a kind of advocacy formation, right? And those are like heads without bodies. And so the base, we're trying to build a body, you know, build something that backs up um, the demands that we're making. And so I think implicit in it is a, a different idea of what it means to build that power, 
right, that you're talking about. We need people. <laughs> we need people who are actually engaged in a deep way. Um, so when I think of base building, I mean, you need structures to onboard people into and things that are meaningful for people to do, right? You don't build a base by wasting people's time. You, so that means you have to have a strategy. But ultimately, I think for it to really last, it is about political subjectivity and like creating political agents. And you know, with the Debt Collective, which is the first union for debtors, you know, we are inspired by the labor movement, inspired by tenants unions, but we're trying to get people to think of themselves in a new way as debtors who have a type of power and who are exploited and oppressed in, a certain, in certain kinds of ways so that they you know, will see themselves in a new light, see their connections to others, build solidarity, and, and stick with a program of action again, through the hard times, because as you said, base building is, is really challenging. And I think there's all sorts of, the challenges are, are so numerous and we will probably only scratch the surface, but it's also like finding meaningful things for, for people to do, to challenge incredibly entrenched uh, systems. And yeah, get, you know, helping people stay engaged for the long haul. But I think the base, it's very refreshing, I think, that we're having this conversation because I think there was a long time where people were thinking, oh, we can skip that step, right? And we can just... Mm -hmm kind of advocate or, you know, have big mailing lists and, and skip the work of actually getting real people involved. I want, I want to come back to the, the question about what organizing is too. And again, you know, there is like organizing is bringing people together who share something and mm -hmm. whether it's a characteristic, whether it's their experience, whether it's their position, whether it's where they exist, you know, geographically, culturally. And so a base, you know, is, is something that people share something, right? Mm -hmm. uh, debtors, there's, there's a lot of different ways to think about that. And I do think it's important to be, you know, when we talk about base building, and I do think like there, there, there can be, particularly in the NGO world, but I think also in a lot of our left politics, we can think about, sometimes when we talk about base building, I think people think about how you actually construct something when all of this is constructed for us. And we do, not all of it, I shouldn't be, we have agency in this, but I think a lot of it is an assessment of where things are, what are the things that people share, and where are the points where bringing people together can build power and leverage, whether that's to win victories or whether that's to build something bigger in the future. We need people because without people, we can't make consequences for the people in power who don't give us you know, what our demands are, be it we'll unelect them or be it we'll withhold our debt. And you know, Lenin talked about like political power being in like the millions, the masses. Like we have to figure out how to get to that level of scale. And I think especially over the last like 10 years with just the proliferation of social media and the popularization of left ideas, it's been really easy to think we can skip that step. You know, and I'm thinking back like in, 20, in 2015 after Mike Brown was killed when there was this like big moment and surge around the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, Dream Defenders was like, well, okay, so everybody on our timeline is talking about abolition, but like, what do people in Florida think about it? And, I, and we went into that you know, we, so we did this listening project and we decided to take a break from social media and we like went into that experience thinking we were going to knock on doors and everybody was going to be like, the revolution is here <laughs> and fuck the police. <laughs> and overwhelmingly from that experience, I mean, we heard people say, actually, police don't come to our communities fast enough. And the number one mm -hmm. issue is actually gun violence. And, you know, it wasn't that people thought police were the solution, but they also didn't couldn't they, or they didn't think police were great, but they couldn't imagine a solution to safety beyond police. 
And I think it can be easy to, to just get confused and to have a little bit of arrogance that we have enough people and that, that if people aren't abolitionists, then to reject them from our movement. But actually, like, we need a lot more people. And so we need to meet people where they're at and move them towards us. And I think um, that's like a muscle that um, a lot of young people growing up in this time where ideas are really popular and social media exists and you can find belonging on the internet with other people who share those ideas, it can be uncomfortable trying to move people who disagree mm -hmm. with you, but that is like precisely what it means to actually be an organizer. Right, and precisely what having a base is not is an organization entirely made up of ideologically self-selecting people who opt into the organization because they heard about DSA on Twitter and then come to a DSA meeting. Mm -hmm. um, and having that base means, keeps you grounded in terms of your assessment of the terrain and the strategy you're gonna develop to move forward on that terrain. We're all involved in different sorts of social movement groups, but obviously organized labor remains key. And you've been involved, Alex, particularly in the labor movement a lot over the years. Key to transforming society and winning socialism. How do you think of the relationship between labor and non-labor social movements? Teachers here in Chicago and in LA, for example, a very good example of have used the bargaining for the common good social unionism framework to extend organized labor's struggles into other domains where working class people are fighting. I do think it's important to think about the distinctions, the different positions that workers in different industries, in different jobs are in vis-a-vis -vis their communities and the people around them. And I do think it's, you know, the the example of the Chicago teachers and I think that kind of like the teachers union movement of the last 10 years is something that it's important to understand can't be replicated exactly in other industries. There is no other industry where you send your child into someone's classroom to be educated, to be fed sometimes, to be taken care of, you know, for 30 hours a week um, for most of the year. There's no other industry that provides that kind of day-to-day -day structure for like millions of working class people um, across the country, which is another reason to think, you know, why does the right hate public schools so much? Because they are an institution that people depend on. And so thinking about, you know, the auto workers fight is heating up right now. The position that those auto workers are in with their communities is a very different position. And so something like how do you connect those two threads is not going to be as direct in some places as it is with teachers in a different way with healthcare workers sometimes, you know, in a different way with others who very vulnerable people are very dependent on um, in different ways. They also occupy different positions. Um, capital looks at them differently. And the employing class looks at different groups of workers um, differently. Some of them exist in very clear choke points of the economy, um, and some of them don't. And so I do think it's important to think about that. And so it's all, again, it's about assessing where you are and what can actually be done. So the path for the auto workers right now is to de make some demands for the whole working class, to say we should have a 32-hour work week, yes. right? And that is very close to when the Chicago teacher said, we actually need to house every unhoused student that goes to our Chicago public schools and we need to make a plan to do that. Those two things, while on the surface, have nothing to do with each other, are deeply interconnected. Yeah, in terms of the, the vice versa on this, like how do, non, how do you think of non-labor social movement organizations articulating themselves towards 
labor, both to strengthen the labor movement, but also to benefit from the strength of labor as by far the largest, even in this diminished state that it finds itself after decade of, of an, decades of anti-union politics, even in this diminished state, by far the largest organized institutional working class presence in this country. Absolutely. I mean, labor is critical and labor is also overwhelmed. <laughs> labor is also a terrain of struggle. So I think if you want to have solidarity with labor in a meaningful way, you have to be offering something, right, to that movement to strengthen it in, in some way. So you said the phrase, Alex, assessing where, uh, where you are and what you can do. And I think that is such a key, simple thing. It's like, where are you? Who are you? What community are you part of? What power could you possess together? And it's the answers to those questions that led me to being involved in the Debt Collective and sticking with it for now over a decade, because I was never going to have a job where I was going to join a labor union because I just refused to have a job that was a real job, <laughs> I'm going to be honest. But I'm still in the economy, right? I mean, I'm still enmeshed in capitalism every minute of, of every day, and I was in debt like so many other people, you know, the majority of people in this country. And it's like, wow, we need a formation so that we can be involved in building power and it, you know, within the debt collective, the idea is using debt as a leverage, right, to demand systemic change because it's a quick skip from your medical bills to universal health care, your student debt to free public mm -hmm. education, right, your, your credit card debt to the fact that the problem is actually you're underpaid at the job and you can't meet your basic needs, right? So there's already a point of connection with labor. And, you know, our position is that debtors are, sorry, that workers are debtors, <laughs> Right. These are overlapping constituencies. And there's a lot of potential there to work together um, in, a, in a way that that is is fruitful for both organizations. And we've you know, been working closely with labor on issues around medical debt, which is something that we're getting more serious about on the issue of student debt cancellation. But I, but again, I think you have to being a good organizer is bringing something to the table for the people that you're asking for solidarity from that you're trying to be in coalition with, especially when they're bigger and more powerful than you. And let's just be honest, labor unions are bigger and more powerful than the debt collective because we're, just, we're an experiment. We're new. We're a decade old, right? I think just in addition to some of the strategic um, ideas you both raised, I think the other thing I'm thinking about is just like the practical ways that we can learn from labor as like one of the most like consistent, strong, structure-based organizing institutions in the country. You know, very early on, you know, SEIU, like, gave us money for our first organizer. You know, uh, Jobs with Justice did trainings with our organizers. You know, so just the type of infrastructure we got in terms of some of just the basics of, like, yeah. how to build an organization and how to do one-to-ones, like, how to do the slow work of organizing. We just learned a lot from actually being in relationship mm -hmm. with labor organizers and, like, super grateful that they saw the utility of a strong youth movement in Florida and why there was shared interest in us in us, in, in, you know, us being successful. And yeah, we've also done like a lot of like with just the conditions in Florida and the right, you know, having so much power. There's been a lot of work that's been done to bring, particularly with SEIU, to bring together community organizations to build like a long term alignment and plan um, because we really recognize that we actually need a shared strategy. And that is both about like building infrastructure and building strong organizations, but also about how eventually are we building some shared strategy. Yeah. And when it comes to housing in Rhode Island and specifically our campaign around 
social housing, we see labor as key to building the political power necessary to make this happen. And our pitch is pretty straightforward and I think I think rather compelling. Like to the building trades, it is we need unionized workers to build this housing and the building trades currently have almost no presence in residential. And to unions like SEIU, it's like your workers are often renters. Um, and so we are attempting to build that labor housing coalition around around both of those kind of interests. There's a lot of use of the word strategy. It's been dropped a few times in this interview already, but it can sometimes feel like there's not a lot of strategy in in movement st- spaces, that, that instead people are deciding who to organize and what to organize around by responding to, to ethical questions, like whose condition is most outrageously offensive or dire, or getting the most attention on, on Twitter on a given day, or like who is abstractly the most depressed, but uh, oppressed. Um, but of course, assessing that a situation is, is unjust does not in and of itself tell you much about what to do about that unjust situation or about whether you're getting closer to your goal or farther away from your goal or whether or how you might tell the difference between those two things. And it also doesn't tell you the cause of those injustices or how they all, how all the injustices fit together to make up the entire capitalist political economic order that we live under and are trying to overthrow. So the question is, what is strategy and how does it guide who you decide to organize, how you decide to organize them, and to what end you're organizing? Yeah, well, first of all, I'll just say I've been really grappling with my underdevelopment. And I think for a long time, I really internalized that. It's like, oh, I'm not smart enough or experienced enough. And then I think in uh, the past couple of years, I've had more grace around the conditions that our generation has had to build organizations under, you know, um, the fact that the new communist movement was completely destroyed, the fact that the black power movement was completely destroyed, and the ways COINTELPRO and mass incarceration have like really divorced us from a lineage of training and a lineage of, you know, Marxist radical tradition. Because of that, there's lots of confusion about strategy, and I think our generation is very clear about injustice. We are very clear about morality, and I think we are very confused and unclear about strategy, which leads to some of the conclusions that you talked about in terms of confusing strategy as, okay, the most morally urgent issue, or, you know, confusing strategy for tactics, or strategy for street heat, just so long as we can, like, keep people out in the street, it will somehow magically lead to the revolution, you know, strategy is like following whoever's the most impacted. So yeah, I think there's a lot of underdevelopment around strategy and a lack, lot of lack of clarity. And like, ultimately, strategy is about how are we building left forces over time while defeating opposing forces to eventually be able to take power. And that requires a really thorough analysis of, of capitalism. I'd say the other thing is that I think we also often confuse campaign strategy for liberatory strategy and that there are, I remember in Dream Defenders when we, were, when we first started and, um, you know, we felt like, we, you know, we had been part of this such a revolutionary moment and then 
we came back to our organization and the only tools that existed for strategy were like the Midwest Academy strategy chart. We were like, what? <laughs> this doesn't feel like it's enough. <laughs> and we felt like we had to hold the whole revolution in our organization, which also allowed, which because of that, put a lot of pressure on us when our organization actually was not set up to be a revolutionary organization like that. And instead, we probably should have been using the Midwest Academy strategy chart more and doing more of the basics of base building. Um, but I say that to say that we do need bigger, in addition to just the basics of organize, of like bread and butter of organizing skills that we need to build up, we also do need strategic frameworks that help us think about strategy at bigger levels um, because you know, we could win the battle and lose the war. And we really need a plan for actually changing the balance of forces in this country. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I might just end up restating a little bit of this. Cause I, I, but, but I do think there, there's a question of like, what are our goals? And that can be in a relatively long-term or short-term context what are our goals, and then how do we actually go about achieving them? And that's where the Midwest Academy strategy chart comes in, you know. And I, I have this like this is like burned into my brain. Um, but but I do think that there is like I, I think you laid out Rachel some of what those longer term goals are, and I think that is important to understand. And I think it's also important to, uh, for us to understand for strategy that there are goals that build into that place um, that have a bunch of flexibility in them too and that we can reassess. So part of that strategy, and this might be like a little too, um, this might be a ridiculous thing to say. Go but for it's, it. <laughs> it's a con you're in a constant state of assessment and reassessment. And how do you debrief a conversation? Mm -hmm. How do you talk about what happened in a meeting? How do you think about what happened in a campaign? And did that move you forward to that goal? Or did it not move forward to that goal? And so a lot of it really is just about having and developing collectively some clarity around what a goal can be and then like how you think about actually achieving that. In yeah. a, and in then a having way. organizational practices where you're ensuring that organizing questions are being asked as strategic questions and having some, some sort of systems in place where then that strategy can be evaluated and reassessment can take place as part of an organization's ideally democratic culture. Yes. Can I, I, I just want to absolutely say I totally agree with what, what's been said. And so I just want to add something to it, which is, so, so Debt Collective was born of Occupy Wall Street. And you mentioned the way we sometimes mistake street heat for strategy, right? When Occupy became holding the park, right, became mm -hmm. an end in itself. Like, oh, if we could just hold Zuccotti Park. Well, what is a movement that's about holding Zuccotti Park, right? <laughs> like, I don't care. I don't want to sleep in a park. I want people to be housed in social housing that's green and beautiful and has saunas, you know? Um, not at this crowded chaos place, you know? That's so specific. <laughs> yeah, I like the sauna <laughs> I want the saunas that are in the Viennese social housing. Um, you know, so out of Occupy, the Debt Collective was born, and there was something, there was something about the fact that none of us knew anything about organizing. I mean, I was a filmmaker making films about philosophy, and some people involved were academics, and there was a high percentage of artists, and there was a kind of creativity, and there is something sometimes about, like, not knowing the rules of something, even the rules of organizing, and... You know, I'm sure there, there were lots of more experienced veteran organizers, maybe from the labor movement, who are like, debt, what is this? You know, this is, this is a wacky thing to organize around. So I just want to kind of create space for the kind of untrained, mm -hmm. 
doesn't seem like it's going to work. Like, you're so naive you're going to try it school. At the same time, if we had done some basics of organizing, like how to keep a list, <laughs> how to make a spreadsheet, you know, and track our conversations, we could be, we'd probably be a lot more powerful and formidable than we are now, right? So we have had to play some kind of catch up in these kind of the nitty gritty stuff of, of organizing, you know, and I think strategy can, you know, it can work in multiple ways. I mean, even though uh, the debt collective was born of occupied as on the one hand, but it was also born of a lot of reading about financialization and neoliberalism. And one question we're asking is, well, how do we tackle this, right? How do we tackle these threads emanating, you know, from the sort of overlap of Wall Street and the government. <laughs> and one way we thought about it was, well, we don't need to occupy Zuccotti Park, right? We need to figure out where capitalism occupies our lives. Yeah. And debt is one way of visualizing that. And so the strategy kind of flows from that that insight, but you always have to just bite it into smaller and smaller chunks, you know, and that is a process. I don't know if there's just one strategy, like if we just got smart enough, we'd have it. I think we do have to constantly assess, reassess, and keep some of that naive creativity, you know, and that experimentation too, so that we, we can keep being radical without being too rigid. Mm-hmm. Um, because you're always, the, hopefully you're changing the terrain, which means you need to radically reassess and figure out what's possible now. We often hear that our movements are siloed, which seems true enough to me, to what extent are we seeing collaboration across movements and organizations? And and what would it look like to truly have a movement of movements? To have not only organizations with their own clear strategic agenda, but Rachel, like you were saying earlier, left that was held together more broadly by some sort of broader strategic, uh, you know, dare I say, revolutionary agenda. I think historically it was the, the party form that that played this role to articulate all these different struggles into a common project. In in the absence of of that sort of party-like organization, what do we need to fill the vacuum? Do we need one big organization that something like a party or a party to win? Or should we be building and nurturing an ecosystem of organizations? How can we build unity across organizations and what sort of organizations will that will that take? Just to answer a part of that, like there is no, I, you know, it seems clear to me and many can disagree, um, but there isn't the space for one big organization that can hold all of the contradictions, even probably of the people in this room and at this conference, <laughs> you know, and, and we're just, and part of that is like, what is the political development that we have? What are the places we can find agreement? And so there's other, you know, I think that it's, it's a, that's a goal to work toward. And a political party is not like one, like there's not a place in the world, in the history, you know, where a political party is just one single organization. Like a political party needs to be an ecosystem um, in and of itself. Um, and so I, I think that there is a need for people across organization, for individual actors to be able to figure out ways to act in concert, um, to be able to, again, like, do those assessments and reassessments together, whether you're working with people who are in medical debt, whether you are working with youth who are trying to figure out how to not get killed by the police, whoever you're working with, thinking about how you're making those assessments collectively across those different groupings of people is a critical piece. Yeah, I think we need like a we need a robust movement ecosystem with many different types of formations. 
And I think when we don't have a functional movement ecosystem, individual organizations feel like they need to hold it all. And for Dream Defenders, that looked like a lot of like pendulum swinging and like trying different things because we tried one thing and it wasn't changing. It wasn't changing the world. So we had to try another thing. So like, you know, early on, it was like the street heat thing. Just keep keep out in the streets. And then it was like, oh, wait, okay, actually, we need to do really deep local base building. So we're like, we're going to scale back and choose three places where we do deep local base building. The rest of our chapters will just like go away. And then we were like, wait, that was cutting off our nose to spite our face. Like there's people who want to be members and we're like, we don't have time for you. (laughs) Right, exactly. Um, And then we were like, oh, we, you know, we had an anti-electoral tendency. And then we were like, oh, wait, we're in Florida and it's run by far right Republicans. Like we, we need an electoral strategy. So, you know, just, it led to us trying a lot of different things really in earnest because of this belief in like, that we needed to be this like revolutionary vehicle and that it was on us, like us as individuals, as individuals. And that led to us being really hard on ourselves, really hard on each other and just feeling a lot of pressure. And yet like everything we tried, like, you know, we, we have built a, a, a you know, a, a, an organization of young people that's strong and, we, and um, we've done really good work and we've won things it's still insufficient to the task of revolution. And so rather than feeling defeated by that, we need to ask ourselves, okay, like what does need to exist in the movement ecosystem to cohere a larger strategy? And that can't exist in one organization. That can't just exist in Dream Defenders. Um, And so, you know, every revolution, successful revolution has had a cadre formation. And, you know, cadre formations are formations whose members are united around liberatory strategy, you know, shared vision, shared assessment, and then work together to carry out that strategy across the movement. And that is missing from our, like, we we need cadre organization. And I think if, yeah, my, my generation didn't grow up with, you know, cadre in the, in the in the movement in the way that we were deeply connected to it and i think as a result that led to lots of like confusion and and just challenges for our for us to actually be a successful strong base building organization there there's a lot of discussion of cadre organizations right now on the left in particular because an organization that you're a part of called left roots has been that's been going on for about a decade now is the purpose of left roots is to form new cadre organizations that you like that unite the left, like you said, around what's called liberatory strategy. But I think a lot of people don't exactly know what a cadre organization is. So what what is a cadre organization? How does it compare to a mass organization like DSA or a base building uh, tenant organizing housing justice organization like the one that I work with? And why why do you argue that the left needs it or mm-hmm. needs or needs a bunch of them yeah. even so um a cadre organization is a formation whose members are united around liberatory vision and assessment and work to carry out shared strategy for liberation and those people are moving throughout the movement ecosystem to move that shared strategy Whereas a base building organization is a mass organization. It's a vehicle for everyday people to come together around issues that unite them. And I think 
what I said earlier about like Dream Defenders, if we had actually used the Midwest Academy strategy chart earlier, we'd probably be more powerful. And I think that there are ways in which, because we didn't feel like we were tied to a larger revolutionary strategy, we were confused about our role. So we felt like we need to be all things to all people. I think we're our organization tied to a cadre organization where we felt like we are connected to this larger movement strategy. It'd be really clear on the role that we're playing in that, the role of our camp pains and being able to bring mass amounts of people into a vehicle that is tied to something greater. Astra, Alex, what's your take on the current state of the movement ecosystem? And are you intrigued by this possibility of a new generation of cadre organizations that might that might tie them together in some way? Yeah, I mean, I, I want the movement ecosystem to be bigger and more diverse and more robust. And, you know, so I cheer on all the good stuff that's happening and so much good work is happening. And there's so many people putting their intelligence and energy and their compassion into um, building power. But yeah, we need, we need more, you know, I can speak, you, you asked about coalitions or, you know, a movement of movements and, you know, even the debt collective trying to build a sort of coalition around student debt cancellation, which we've pushed to the mainstream, <laughs> you know, which should be pretty non-controversial at this point. It's been kind of polarized within the electoral framework that the Democrats are pro at least partial student debt cancellation. The Republicans hate it. And even then, you know, many sort of, again, sort of nonprofit groups, advocacy groups, you know, are just not very bold. Right. And also don't have bases. So don't bring a lot of power to the table. So I, I want something better for all of us. The cadre thing intrigues me and worries me. <laughs> right. Because, I mean, I think there's a scenario where I agree with the cadre and I think that they're brilliant and radical and not rigid. Right. Not um, sectarian. And then I'm like, oh, that could be really great because I, I think you, you do need, you know, at the Debt Collective, for example, the people who founded were socialists, like unabashedly so. And, but we open the door to anyone with debt. I organize with the debt collective because I want to reach people who don't agree with me. <laughs> and that is my number one priority. And because I think we need to work on economic issues. If I was working just on what I thought was the most moral, urgent issue, issue or crisis, it would probably be a very different project. Um, Maybe climate. You know, it'd be like animal rights or something, yeah. right? If I just followed my, <laughs> my 12-year-old heart. Um, <laughs> You know, but I think we need to change the, the economic system. So and I'm saying that to just say, so make sure that you don't become freaking liberal, right? You need people with a socialist vision. And so if there was something coordinating that across movements, I think that could be really brilliant. But I think how do you do it in a way that's just transparent, has integrity, isn't sectarian, is empowering for people are, are the questions. And we, we want to see it. You know, I'd love to see that in action, right? I, I want to say that I think that if there are thinking about building movement ecosystem, thinking about building something that can actually have the strength to take on entrenched capital and, and maybe at this point not even take it on and defeat it, but actually create a vision for what comes after its demise, you know, however much we can speed that up or however much we have control over it, it requires multiple tendencies, some of which probably don't exist right now. And it requires ways for people to access all of those that are open. It requires developing structures that are democratic and that can look different 
in different types of organization. I mean, I'm very conscious of the fact, you know, not to date myself, but born in 1980, I do think of, you know, I, I, I've been thinking about this a lot, just kind of some of the toughest days of the American left are my entire childhood, my entire political <laughs> awakening. And I think that's true for a lot of people here and a lot of people listening to the dig right now. Some people might be a little younger and, and have a little bit of a different perspective. And so I think like with that comes sometimes a rejection of what's come before, in part because... <laughs> You know, in my own head at different points, I've said that created like this, like these different tendencies of the the 30s or the 40s or 50s, 60s, 70s helped to create the world that I grew up in. You know, I was born in Detroit and in 1980 and watched deindustrialization happen, you know, all around me. But I think that's like a negative way, like everything we have to think of in a positive frame, like how do we think about the lessons of what's happened? And I think it's also thinking expansively and globally about what has actually worked to build powerful working people and how to make assessments that, are, that aren't kind of colored by our own assumptions, aren't colored by the places we come from. And that requires having people who occupy different positions in the movement coming together to share some strategy. So whatever we call it, I'm in favor of it. Like I should just say that like very clearly because it's clearly something that's been missing in a coherent and collective and broad way. And if people are thinking about how do we create some shared strategy that can look different in different places and that brings us together, then I'm all for it. Rachel, to ask one follow-up question jumping off of uh, Astra's comment, how do you envision or how does Left Roots envision having all the clear benefits of cadre formations, highly developed leaders who know how to organize, who are ideologically developed, who are concretely trained in what they're doing, who can act with some unity and discipline around a shared liberatory strategy, all these things that are clearly do, uh, all these things that are clearly good without the things that Astra worries about, which did accompany the new communist movement Mm -hmm. and prior communist party eras of, of American Communist Party formation, which are sectarianism and dogmatism? Mm-hmm. I think, one, we're, we believe that we need to learn from the many different ideological traditions, we, that there's something to learn from the black feminist tradition, that there's something to learn from Lenin, that there is something to learn from now that there's something to like that 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 there that we want to learn from all the ideological traditions and um that what should unite a cadre organization is shared strategy um is a shared vision for liberation but that um yeah we should we that that at this point we need to be aligned around strategy and that and that there can be ideological diversity but shared strategy and or you know that we can learn from all the different ideological traditions and have shared strategy and then i think also um trying to learn from some of the cadre organizations should should earn leadership through like organizing and testing strategy and and the, the political clarity that comes from that right rather than insess- insisting that people just mm. submit to their line yeah i i want to jump in and talk actually thinking about the labor movement and the kind of resurgence and i, I don't want to put too much on what's happened and what's happening right now in the labor movement. But I do think there is an example of 
a coherent set of strategies, different ideological kind of formations having create, you know, we can talk about the rank and file strategy in the labor movement. We can talk about the ways that over the last 50 years, um, people on the left, socialists and others, have thought about how to transform the labor movement and that that is starting to work. We have the first popularly elected president of the United Auto Workers in its history. You know, we just had a contract campaign at UPS led by essentially a popular front coalition, you know, um, inside the Teamsters Union to win enormous uh, gains at UPS. We have a teachers union movement that is vibrant and that is like a center and locus of what the fight back is to the right in different ways in different places around the country. That comes from a long tradition of sometimes very consciously connected and sometimes not connected different ideological frameworks and struggles that kind of make up. You can look at it and maybe historians will look back at it and say that you can see the outlines of what that kind of cadre formation, there isn't like a shared strategy and there's a lot of disagreement. And I think we've seen some of that, you know, here at the conference too. Um, but I think for most of us here, we would say there's been a real market advance and some real structural victories won. And I think that that kind of framework can apply as well um, to the broader movement. Hi, this is Olufemi Otaiwo, and you're listening to The Dig. You can support the podcast at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Our History Has Always Been Contraband, In Defense of Black Studies, edited by Colin Kaepernick, Robin D.G. Kelly, and Kianga Yamada-Taylor. Since its founding as a discipline, Black Studies has been under relentless attack by social and political forces seeking to discredit and neutralize it. Our History Has Always Been Contraband was born in response to the latest threat, efforts to remove content from an AP African American Studies course. This book brings together canonical texts and authors in Black Studies, including those excised from the AP curriculum, as well as original essays by the editors and a range of scholar activists. Taken as a whole, these writings illuminate the ways we can collectively work toward freedom for all through abolition, feminism, racial justice, economic empowerment, self-determination, decolonization, queer liberation, cultural and artistic expression, and beyond. Our history has always been contraband. In Defense of Black Studies, edited by Colin Kaepernick, Robin D.G. Kelly, and Kianga Yamada-Taylor. Find Our History Has Always Been Contraband at haymarketbooks.org, where readers in the U.S. and U.K. receive free shipping on orders over $25 or £20, respectively. One reason I'm so in intrigued by cadre organization and cadrefication is, is because every single person I've met from, from Left Roots, and including or some of the organizers who I've known, respect the most and have known for over a decade all over the country, they're all people with incredibly sophisticated ideological, strategic analysis and concrete organizing skills. So how, how, do we, how do we replicate that sort of thing within all of our organizations? How, how should we do training and education in our organizations? Because on the one hand, developing ideology without strategy and organizing skills, that leads to sectarian sloganeering or is maybe just a book club. 
a book club that people mistake for a political organization. Very small. Very small <laughs> they exist, unfortunately. Yeah. But but on the other hand, doing doing strategy and organizing without ideology, the yeah. the Alinskyite model, gives you the tools to win particular campaigns, but not to build durable political power, and certainly not to do rev, do revolutionary politics. So, what roles should political education and practical training, respectively, play within an organization? How how can an organization develop practical skill sets, the, the sort of thing that's emphasized in union and community organizing, while also nurturing the sort of ideological coherence that communist and socialist parties once provided? There's so much in your question, Dan, that answered it. <laughs> it was so it well said. A five-part question? It's <laughs> a whole episode. good. I mean, so yes to your question. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you laid out why we need to do both, right? Why there needs to be sort of political education and, and attention to the ideological and to changing people's subjectivity, um, not just activating them, right, but ideally bringing them towards a, a, a socialist politics. I mean, I've never been in another movement, so I mean, this is where my examples can only come from the debt collective, again, because this was just an experiment that took over my life and, and other people's lives as well. So I hadn't done a lot of trainings. You know, our, now our organizers go to other trainings, and you know, we will glean from any anything out there, right? We want to learn from all the tendencies and, and put more tools in our, our toolkit. Um, but there's not a roadmap for organizing around indebtedness. You know, and indebtedness that word contains so many different concrete forms of exploitation, right? Your rent, your mortgage, medical debt, carceral debt, which contains a whole myriad. And there's many debts within that framework. Student debt, which could be federal or private loans. So each of these demand uh, a different strategic approach and so different kinds of training. But ultimately, you know, we offer people trainings. So, you know, here's how you run a meeting. Um, we offer monthly, here's how you write op-ed sessions, right, and help people place op-ed. So just really practical skills that we can share with people to help them Lead lead initiatives in their community. We also do direct service provision, which is a big part of what we do, and doing that in a way that brings people into a radical analysis. Right? Like, yes, we will help you <laughs> strike your debt, dispute your debt, figure out what legal tools could help get this debt off your back, but not within this framework of like, oh yeah, that means that things are working, right? Or that the law will ultimately save us, but to do it in a way that radicalizes people. So real financial literacy, not bullshit financial literacy. Mm -hmm. um, and that direct service provision really helps get people in the door, like people who wouldn't otherwise come to a group that is openly left-wing and pretty out there. And we're not the first group to do that. The Black Panthers did amazing direct service provision, right? I mean, it's a way of meeting people's needs in a way that also helps them imagine what they could receive in the future, all the things that they're entitled to. So direct service provision, training, and then political education. So we run something called Jubilee Schools, which is, you know, all sorts of sessions about the way financial uh, financialized capitalism works to international um, issues. We have all kinds of sessions going all the time. And those are the sessions where, you know, we're trying to, again, bring people into a different kind of consciousness. And ultimately, you know, I think with the goal of building not just members, but leaders, so that they can take initiative where they are and you know, make us more powerful in the long run. But I, again, you know, my experience is so limited because I, unlike Alex here, 
you know, I haven't worked in other organizations, and we've been really building, building this road by walking it and trying to suss out, like, what do people want? What do the people who are coming to us say they want? What do they need? Where do we think that there are weaknesses that we um, could fill? And so we're constantly just trying to develop new stuff and figure out new ways that we can benefit our members, both in the immediate by getting debt canceled, but also in the long term, trying to shift their subjectivity so that they'll stick with us even after that cancellation comes. Yeah, I mean, political education is a huge part of what we do. And, you know, both the hard skills organizing training, but also political education. And that's taken many different forms. Um, you know, we, we've been to Palestine, we've sent people to Mexico, we've sent people to Brazil. Those have been very transformative experiences yeah. for our organizers in terms of understanding what it means to live in the belly of the beast, in terms of seeing, learning from revolutionary movements around the world. I'd also say, actually, coming back from Brazil, that was a big part of what made our organization socialist, because our experiences with socialism in the U.S. was we thought it was mostly white people, and then when we went to Brazil and saw all these black people talking about socialism, we're like, oh, okay, yeah, that's what we are. Um, so it really has like transformed the organization, and... Um, how much we lead with our ideological line, for instance, like mm -hmm. at the door, is very much based on time, place, and conditions. So like, yeah. I live in Miami, where um, it's one of the most like reactionary places in the world <laughs> around um, socialism and communism. We've literally had people be like, okay, so like, we like y'all, but like, what is up with the socialism thing? And then proceed to, you know, so it's just, it's very challenging in terms of the conditions and the city council calls everything communism and then uses that to, um, to, uh, you know, to chip away at public support for ideas that actually benefit people like rent control and things like that. Yeah, so we, I, one of the things that we've done is we've created a document called the Freedom Papers, which is our political agenda. And it's a way of talking about a socialist, abolitionist, international, internationalist, black feminist politic without using those words and with really plainly just saying the things we believe that people deserve. And um, we do these, um, these, what we call freedom sessions, which are essentially house meetings where people pull together their friends, their neighbors around the freedom sessions and then people still around the freedom papers and then we read it and people share, you know, their story of self in relation to the document. And it's really, I mean, people are, are so moved. People are brought to tears. Like people are really actually hungry for political vision and ways to make meaning mm -hmm. of the world. Mm -hmm. It's a way to reach people without words that might be triggers for certain people or a ways to make the theory really real for people. So, and then as people enter the organization and get more and more political education, then, you know, we train them in socialism and, you know, feminism and, you know, you know, the actual theories. But um, really the Freedom Papers is our starting point with people. And we find that like, Everyone who reads it is moved and touched. Yeah, Alex, you've been a leader in roughly one million organizations. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm still stuck on the Midwest Academy strategy chart. I'm sorry, from a little while ago. But I do think it kind of calls for how are we thinking about a set of shared tools and resources? Like there is something, we overcomplicate a lot of these questions, I think, um, a lot of the time. And I'm as guilty of that as anybody. But there are a set of shared resources. There are a set of tools that can be used, whether they're the perfect tool for a given moment. These are things that can all be edited and changed and shifted based on the conditions that you're working in. And I think that leads to, you know, I think about kind of shared language. And I think that's one of the, you know, as we think about the ways that 
that kind of revolutions, that, that kind of transformative change has been built, whether it's in this country or, or elsewhere, there is something about how do people have a set of things that are shared. And it can be strategy, it can be ideology. Those are higher order questions um, that are more challenging. But if people have been trained to use a set of the same tools in similar ways, and I do think like, you know, the Midwest Academy for all of its faults has been a source of training for thousands and thousands of organizers, you know, over the last 50 years. So how do we think about using some of those tools um, that are applicable in a lot of different contexts and using those to create more and more shared language. I do think gatherings like this, there's a lot of ways to think about how to do collective political education that aren't about having study groups, which I'm not against, that aren't about you know delegations, which I think are really important. Like, What are points of entry um, for people who are trying to, to figure out how they're going to change a specific thing you know, that's happening around them? Do you think we have an adequate training infrastructure no, not. Because as someone who was me and other people who founded Reclaim Rhode Island, like did not really know what we were doing <laughs> when we founded the organization in 2020. This is a we're pattern st- here. Right? Yeah, okay, yeah, we still try to figure yeah. out what we're doing. We have mm-hmm. figured out how to kick a lot of ass, but we have <laughs> desperately searched for training resources. Like, is, hello, is there a national organization and funding available to send someone to Rhode Island for a weekend to train our leadership. And that kind of thing does not, we're, like, yeah. kind of insanely enough, does not seem to exist. I, I want to say one thing to this, and this is going to, again, betray like exa- my kind of like specific age and, and how I came up. My first, and I, you know, I've been a, like a paid staff organizer for most of my adult life, almost all of it. And I was trained initially in an organization called ACORN that no longer exists for a number of different reasons. And I think I know there are people in this room who, whether you want to admit it or not, were trained in ACORN too. It's a place that turned out, because of the amazing turnover at ACORN, thousands of organizers <laughs> who had over who had some shared experience and some of that shared experience is negative and is baggage that we need to get rid of but some of it <laughs> created a common language and set of tools I also come out of a long time in SEIU, which was, you know, for years and years, the biggest organizing union and still probably is. But there were things like the WAVE program at SEIU that turned out hundreds of organizers every year. Some of them stayed in the union. A lot of them went to other movement space. And I'm looking specifically at some people here or the AFL-CIO's organizing institute. So there have been, you know, these things have existed. Over the last 15 years, a lot of that has gone away. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying I want to recreate any of that as it was, but there are functions of that joint training that gave people, again, like a common language and a common set of tools and skills that could be applied in different ways, in different movements, in different contexts, and different conditions. I interned for SEIU Local One right here in Chicago, Union Summer, the summer of 2001. Union Summer no longer exists. Yeah, yeah. In Rhode Island, at least, and I'm curious to hear what you've experienced elsewhere in the country, we've seen a huge drop-off in sort of rank-and-file, everyday person, leftist and socialist, willingness to enthusiasm, willingness to volunteer, et cetera, after the real heights that reached in the summer, that were reached in the summer of 2020. My question is, how, how should we relate 
to these moments of mass enthusiasm for the struggle that we can't create, but that do periodically, thank God, occur. And and then these moments of more, maybe not mass pessimism, but less mass optimism. And then in particular, looking back, how might we, during the summer of 2020, and in the wake of the Bernie campaign, how might we have better harnessed that moment of enthusiasm, both both for more coordinated action in that moment, and also in terms of building more powerful organization over the long haul? Rachel, you and I were talking before the interview, and you were um, remarking on this uh, incredibly lengthy two-part episode that I did on, on the present, analyzing the present conjuncture recently. And uh, we were discussing just this. And I think one of my guests, I think it was Gabe Wynant, you know, was talking about, you know, we, that we need to do a better job doing it, but that it was important to not make sure that you like get that, that trained organizers, that professional organizers don't kind of get in the way or try to control too much the organic, spontaneous eruption that's taking place. And you said to me, isn't that what the Bolsheviks did? <laughs> I did say that. I I mean, I think in 2020, like the fact that defund became a rallying cry for the movement was not just a random thing that occurred. It occurred because of like a deck, you know, decades of abolitionist organizing and organizational infrastructure that had been built, you know, among our generation around, you know, the, our, you know, the, the movement for black lives. And um, many of us, when the uprising were happening, were coming together to think about, like, how are y'all, how, what, what demands are y'all putting forth? What demands are y'all putting forth? And, you know, defund kind of rose. But it didn't just happen. You know, it happened because of organization and people who were thinking about how do we, how do we put forth a vision around what this moment means. And I think, you know, we are living in a time where just mass amounts of people are being radicalized. And if we don't have the organizational infrastructure that is able to put forth um, a vision to absorb people, train them to be organizers, move people towards strategy, it makes it much more ripe for co-option. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, what we also saw from 2020 was a bunch of corporations hiring diversity, <laughs> you know, or, you know, making commitments around diversity hires and, or, you know, posting, you know, printing out, you know, I don't know, putting Black Lives Matter on TV shows and on t-shirts that they sell at Walmart and all sorts of things. So I think without actually organizational infrastructure, it makes us, you know, our movements can get co-opted. And so, yeah, I think it is our, that is the role of the organizer is to help shape organic moments and to um, use that to build sustained organization and and to move a left agenda. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think the, and I I keep kind of like referring back and maybe that's by design, Dan, maybe it's, it's like the brilliant structure of this conversation, but I I do think about the, the codrification question as it relates to, again, how do we make an assessment in the moment? How do we prepare beforehand? You know, and I think of actually a set of organizing happening, um, you know, as we're moving into um, Atlantic hurricane season, as we're moving into, you know, as bad as this summer has been, um, things are going to get even worse. And I know there's sets of organizations um, around the country, particularly in places that um, have seen climate disaster in recent years, thinking about how are we going to move our campaigns, our work forward while 
disaster is happening around us? And how do we think about the resources and support that we need in advance? And so I do think, like, we've been through upsurges of varying sizes and scales, over, like, in a lot of ways, collectively, over the last 12 years, you can mark it, you know, you can go back to the the huge immigrant rights marches of 2006. There's a lot of different ways you could mark that. We know that those are going to come. We don't know exactly where, but there is a preparation that, again, requires movement-wide, ecosystem-wide strategic discussion and partnering. It doesn't require having any answers about specifically what form that organizational development takes, but it requires an ability to work together, to look to others for resources. I think about my own response and organizational response from places like United Working Families during the uprising in 2020. And we were wholly unprepared to figure out how to hold, particularly for our black sisters and brothers who were out there and others who were out there on the front line in a real battle and in a real fight day to day. And I want to reflect on that and think about what can we do to prepare? It might not, that attack might not be, and the uprising might not be in the same exact place, but how would we want to hold a set of responsibilities collectively um, for people who are in like a real fight um, for their lives in a moment-to-moment way. Yeah, just to, to add to what people have said, I mean, I think the, the lack of organizations or the lack of concrete outcomes feeds the mass pessimism that you're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. When you're part of this amazing, emotional, cathartic movement, and then all you see is some politicians sort of campaigning on it and then betraying the values or some companies running ads with it, but then running away as soon as people, you know, on the right wing boycott them. Or you know, it's Nancy Pelosi kneeling in Kente cloth. Kente cloth, right. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's demoralizing. So that's why it, it's incumbent on us to try to mitigate against that and to, to organize in those moments. But it's, I mean, capturing 20 million people, that's, that's big, you know, that's, that's, a lot. But I think your point's really key is that even these moments, these uprisings, they're not totally spontaneous, right? And organizers have set the stage for them. I mean, Occupy wasn't spontaneous, right? There were attempts to occupy before the, the occupation of Zuccotti Park worked. Um, certainly the stage was set for 2020 by years and years of organizing. And so it should kind of give us heart that actually you can kind of catalyze those moments. But then the question is, so what do you do with it? How do you capture that? I'll just say that the Debt Collective... You know, we were, it's, it's not the same thing as a um, street protest, but we were very, you know, shaped by t- the 2008 financial crisis. What does capitalism do? It creates financial crises, right? They're periodic, but you know one's coming. And so our sort of thought experiment was like, wow, what if debtors had been organized before 2008? Mm-hmm. What if all of those millions of people who were foreclosed upon, who had their homes stolen by the banks, had been organized, right, en masse? And this is this like almost like a thing we would say over and over, right? And, and another crisis is coming. We had no idea that it would look like COVID. And that moment was one that we were not ready for at the scale I wish we were ready for. But we were able to harness some of that moment to push our agenda at, to a stage we had not been able to get to before. And the 2020 protests were key because what they did for us was create a sort of a much larger racial consciousness, right? A consciousness of the fact that, oh, wow, structural racism means that debt could be racist, (laughs) which it is, right? If you look at who's holding debt in this country, it's disproportionately black and brown people, especially black women. And so 
the point is, you know, I think we should try to plan ahead, but we never know exactly what the next crisis is going to look like, what the next uprising is going to look like. But we should, you know, absolutely aspire to make the most of those those moments. And in our little way, I mean, I almost picture this as like a pirate ship and we had a little, you know, sail and we were able to capture a lot of wind from those intersecting crises of 2020, 2021. But if we had a bigger ship with a bigger sail, we could have done much more. And, you know, there's a way in which it's, it's easy to lament that you weren't able to seize those moments because those moments where people are activated or a crisis still has potential to go in a good or bad direction are actually really, really precious. And right now, it's the other side that has momentum. Rachel, is part of the motive for, for this codrification process in part to prepare for, be better prepared for the next 2020? I mean, I think in general right now, the left needs to be prepared for moments of crises and the way that the right uses moments of crises to push their agenda. So yeah, I think we do need mm-hmm. to be being able to um, anticipate what might come and be ready to figure out how we're going to use that to, to, build, to build left power. I, w- I want to ask about scale and place, mm-hmm. how we should think about how to relate national, state, and local organizing together. And we could throw in international too, but that might complicate things too much for the purposes of this question. And then also how we should think about approaching different sorts of geographies, different sorts of cities, suburbs, rural areas, all the different sorts of places that we can organize. In Rhode Island, we've been focusing our tenant organizing specifically in poor and working class cities that are not Providence, mostly because the slum, slum, the reason we're doing that is because the slumlord that we've been targeting, Pioneer Investments, that's where their apartments are. Mm -hmm. But it's turned out to be a really interesting and I think productive decision that we made because what little organized left there is in Rhode Island is very focused on Providence. In a place like West Warwick, a heavily white working class city, you know, a little bit south of Providence. It, no one expects any sort of left organization to show up there. And it's been really interesting since we have. So how do you approach these questions of geography and scale in your work? I mean, you know, sometimes, and, and there's like a, there's a little bit of a shortcut to some degree for the union work that I've done, which is that's a decision that's made for you to a degree. And then you have to understand like where is, like if you're dealing with a set of workers in a specific place, that's not something that you have control over necessarily as an organizer. You have control over thinking about where is there a victory? You know, like how, mm-hmm. how broad do you need to, to work to move a victory? And so that's something I think that can come from, you know, if we, again, kind of like rewind through the conversation, we think about what is a social base that we're actually trying to interact with? And then what is the base that we're trying to build for an organization? I mean, that tells us a lot. That doesn't mean, you know, like those decisions are never super clear, I think, or very rarely are super clear. It's actually one of the things that I like about electoral politics is that somebody else has made that decision for you. Mm-hmm. Here are the exact voters. Here's the outline of the district yeah. um, that you're dealing with. President of the United States, governor of mm-hmm. Illinois, yes. mayor of Chicago, yes. alder of wherever. Yes, <laughs> Metropolitan Water Reclamation District Commissioner. Yeah, all those things are, <laughs> for example, <laughs> yeah, a very important role. It really is, and it'll get more important um, in the near future um, with climate change. And so I do think, you know, I... <laughs> That goes back to, I'm just going to be a broken record. And like, how do you make an assessment? How do you make it collectively with other people? And how do you think about 
reassessing that and how do you think about you know that it's a it's a debate we've had like in in political organization do we focus on the city of chicago do we focus on these eight wards do we focus on the county do we focus on this or that sometimes those decisions get made by the people who opt into leadership sometimes those decisions get made by the practicality of what you can actually do with the given resources you have um, but i do think maybe and I'm, maybe i'm talking myself into an actual answer is is always thinking about like what is the next step and what's the next piece of the horizon how are you thinking strategically about where you're going to move next and that kind of informs what the scope is of what you can do in the current moment yeah i mean again you know coming back to debt organizing because that's what i know and i you know i think it's when we're talking about organizing it is really important to give answers that are grounded and concrete and not just pie in the sky so debt is a big field and different types of debt operate very differently and make you think about location, about space and scale in really different ways. Student debt, 95% of it is held by the federal government. And so by design, the federal government is our target. That actually makes local organizing really tricky because it's not like you can go to the local Chase Manhattan Bank and protest and be like, cancel my student debt because they actually don't have anything to do with it. Your loan might be serviced by SoFi, for example, which has a headquarters in San Francisco. But for the most part, we're talking about Washington, D.C. and the Department of Education, which is acting as one of the country's biggest banks. And so that's where we have to try to build pressure. Other types of debt are totally different. We're talking about um, your rent debt. Well, it's to your landlord. But then it turns out your landlord actually is probably an LLC who might actually be a corporate landlord, might actually be BlackRock, Blackstone. Which one of them is it? I don't, I can't even keep them straight, right? But so you might have a local target, which is your, around your, your building and where you actually live, but it actually probably connects you to larger targets as well. So that gives you actually like something grounded in space. We're also beginning to work on, on medical debt that couples um, a, a federal strategy um, with uh, targeting hospitals. Uh, nonprofit hospitals violate the Affordable Care Act all the time and deny people the free and reduced cost care that they are required by law to, to give people. That's how they get their nonprofit tax exemption. <laughs> and so we are beginning to organize around this, like absolutely like um, ubiquitous law breaking on the part of nonprofit hospitals, right? So that gives us there's something like 2,200 of them in the United States, 2,200 great targets, right, that are grounded, and all of the associated connections, right, that, and also, um, again, a federal strategy. So that actually roots us even more in a place. So, it, you know, again, it depends on assessing the conditions and who it is that you want to mobilize. But for us, you know, for the debt collective, especially with the student debt campaign, place-based organizing didn't really make sense, which actually was a boon to us when COVID hit and we started to move things onto the national agenda because it was fine being on Zoom, right? The whole point is debt sticks to you where you are. It's not connected to your workplace. It's not connected to the local bank. So we could virtually organize. You know, debtors would sort of protest or manifest, you know, protest in some way in their community and make themselves visible. But ultimately, we were, you know, our target was in Washington. And that's, you know, changing as we embark on, on other campaigns. So, yeah, the question of place, I think, is just, it's, you know, what kind of organizing are you doing? Where are you trying to mobilize and what targets, you know, actually make sense? And for me, targeting hospitals, this is the last thing I'll say, you know, in and of its own, it is interesting on its own, but it's important to me that we're, we're doing it in a way that is connected to a bigger national demand. And of course, we don't have the capacity to organize at every hospital, all 2,200 of them. So we are strategically picking a rural community 
Baltimore, Maryland, I mean, partly because we want to demonstrate that 100 million people have medical debt, and we want to show the diversity uh, and the, the breadth and depth of that impact in the, in the people that we're mobilizing and bringing um, out of the shadows into the public eye. Rachel, Dream Defenders is going national. That must be pretty intense. And I'm guessing you've been thinking about questions of scale. <laughs> yes, we have. And I think, you know, 2020 was a big impetus because we saw, you know, millions of young people being activated and they're not being a political home that was able to bring them in at scale, develop their leadership and funnel people into into campaigns. And so, yeah, we've been in this question of like, that is a gap that needs to be filled. Um, how do we have more organization that's able to absorb young people um, and have lower barriers of entry into organization? Um, you know, I think one of the challenges that we're that we've or one of the things we've learned over the years is that, you know, um, at times in the organization, we were like, everybody needs to be an organizer and you need to be like on a very clear organizer track. And, and that was challenging because like actually not everybody wanted to do the slow work of organizing. Some people just did want to be activists <laughs> and um, that's actually okay. And so now we're trying to figure out how do we build an infrastructure that allows for people who just want to be activists to be able to do so in political community towards a concerted strategy and then also have a way for people who want to be organizers to get the deeper development to be able to build up their skills to do the local deep local base building that we know builds the type of local power um, that our movements also need. Organizers on the left have, have for a very long time been critiquing while finding themselves very much enmeshed within the so-called nonprofit industrial complex, or NPIC. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Does the NPIC exist? If so, what is it about the NPIC that we all need to worry about? What concretely, what sort of contradictions does it create that we as organizers must struggle with? And, and what are some resolutions that at least provisionally provisionally help resolve those contradictions in our organizing? And then lastly, can we simply oppose the NPIC or, or as I would suggest, are, are most of us inevitably caught up in it in one way or another? I mean, we, we live in a world, Dan, that's not of our own creation. And we live in a world, and it's not even that capitalists have created it. Capital has created it, right? The, the accumulation of capital, its own force of gravity, has created um, a situation. And, and there is like a degree to which it, it's built into our tax code. We can't, there is, I shouldn't say it's completely inescapable, but it's hard to imagine building real durable mass organization, being able to take power in a real way that doesn't kind of continually um, grapple with that contradiction on a day-to-day -day basis. And I do, you know, I, I would argue that I think it's another reason to think about the centrality of the labor movement and its relationship. Like the labor movement, um, there are few meaningful organizations that have structure and power and resources on the left that are funded purely by their own members. And dues, not foundations. Right. Dues, yeah. not foundations. And I, you know, and that's, it's all, 
you know, a lot of it is a question on a day-to-day -day basis of figuring out how to strike some of those balances. But I'll go again to the question of how are we grappling with, like every one of these problems for us gets individualized to us as individuals, to individual organizations, to individual tendencies. We have to think about this in a collective way that isn't about demonization of mm -hmm. an entire sector um, because that sector is inextricably tied to capital and capitalism, which we are in opposition to. And so, you know, it's like it, there, there is a, you know, I'm, I come back to this question of how are we going to make collective assessment and how are we going to talk about that? And, you know, it's something that evolves as well. And so it's not a static force. I think for me, like, I agree with what you're saying. And I think we need to make, like, one of my, like, things that I wish I had had a, a clear analysis as I was building Dream Defenders was, like, how much money we actually like needed and for what and like what type of organizational infrastructure would actually allow us to get our membership base to scale and there's a way in which when you're fundraising you know because you're an organizer and you know more organized money organized you know organized people power you're like okay more money just bring in more money and i wish i had had a clear assessment around like how much did we need and for what and i also wish that we had had because i think there's ways in which um, foundation funding did allow, did um, make us sometimes skip steps um, in terms of like, you know, I, there's a Cesar, there's an amazing Cesar Chavez article called um, Union of the Community. And he talks about like how he organized, he felt organizers shouldn't be paid until like workers were able to pay them because that like put pressure on the organizer to like bring in the bacon or whatever. And he tells the story of like going to one of his members and like asking for, they were like two months behind in, in dues and how he took their last $5 bill and he felt like really bad about it. And he talked about how he felt guilty for like, you know, he really felt guilty afterwards. But then how that organizer ended up being one of his most powerful organizers, one of his like most committed leaders. I think like the Montgomery bus boycott is like another really strong example of like the reason why the bus boycott was successful was because and was possible was because of the community creation of a carpool system and i'm like okay if i think now we'd maybe we'd be like oh let's just give everybody uber passes like you know like because we have money to do it so i think there's like a way in which like um i hope we wouldn't but you, you know what i'm saying i think there's a way in which resources that hits too close. can allow you to skip steps in terms of actual organizing Agreed. and organizing yeah. people um, that in a way in which when you when you do have a due structure, you're actually creating a culture of like protagonism, um, agency and ownership over the organization and the work. As a an occasional dig host, I just have to refer to your opening speech, right? Where you're like the dig is funded by listeners. Patreon.com. Patreon.com. That's why it's independent and radical. And, you know, the same thing applies to media. It applies to organizations. Of course, in, you know, it takes resources to do the kind of work we're talking about. I think your, your questions about resources are so key. And so, you know, may the NPIC God smile upon me and give me a grant. But, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, like... One thing, you know, we are always honest at the Debt Collective, which is if we want to be truly independent, then we need to somehow be self-sustaining um, because, you know, money always has strings attached, especially when ultimately that money comes from rich people seeking a tax benefit. 
and this is the last question, and then we'll close up. Um, unfortunately, there are time constraints to a live dig that do we not exist. We can't do exist. a classic cannot, three and a half hour. We can't. Dig. Yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe later. Maybe I have I have like half of the questions I wanted to ask. I didn't have time for. So maybe we'll jump on Zoom next week. Um, one of the things I'm proudest about with with Reclaim RI is that we've navigated a period of extraordinarily bitter left conflict in Rhode Island over the past three years. And we've survived it not only relatively intact, but but far stronger than, than when we were founded in 2020. What does it mean for an organization to be resilient? What does it take? What what factors make an organization ready, ready to withstand inevitable drama, whether that drama comes from the inside of an organization or the outside, or as often as the case, both. Two thoughts that I'll contribute. I think healthy organizational culture that includes a lot of trust is key, um, but that gets harder as an organization gets bigger. And then second, I think being disciplined about what political fights outside the organization to get into in terms of intra-left political fights. Mm. And I guess specifically on that point, I mean, Twitter discipline, posting <laughs> discipline, I think really actually matters a lot. Yeah. Those are yeah. good. I mean, yeah, I think you resilient. I mean, I mean, right. You know, struggles within and struggles without, you know, the debt collective has become big enough that now we are much more the target of Republican ire. So there have been some hearings in Washington where we're invoked as this Marxist organization who is, you know, scheming or somehow, uh, you know, has a, has like a front row seat, or we're actually like directing Department of Education policy, right? Um, <laughs> no. <laughs> and there are all sorts of tools that they have to make a small organization's life really challenging, right? So we want to be resilient to, to things like that, for sure. Um, but in terms of internal, I think Twitter discipline is really key. Having a focus, like for me, I think the debt collectives, is, our focus is on abolishing debt, meeting people's needs through, you know, the, the public, uh, through, through reparative public goods, right? Again, the provision of health care, housing, medical care. And that's what we do. And that clarity of sort of, you know, goals and strategic intent does kind of keep a lot of stuff at bay. So I think strategic focus can actually help with mitigating the drama. The other thing is a culture of kindness, it's true. Like, we are nice to each other. People really like our meetings. We like each other. You don't have to be best friends. I'm actually kind of, in theory, I'm like, you shouldn't have to be friends with your comrades, you know? You can hate each other. But actually, the thing is, when I'm in a position of leadership, I want there to be good vibes and, like, it to be an experience that doesn't add to the trauma we're experiencing day to day in the outside world. Like, this is really important to me. I don't have to show up at the debt collective, so the vibes are to be good, or I'm not going to be part of it, right? It's not my job. And so there is a real, like, self-conscious culture of kindness and concern and decency and, you know, our clowning around and making jokes that get us through what is, like, otherwise really hard work. So I think being nice to each other as much as possible, just being decent, not being assholes, you know, no assholes. That helps. I know it's that's hard to live by, but um, asshole radar is good. Well, I got to come to a debt collective meeting, yeah. um, <laughs> and and I will. But I I mean, all of that um, agreed. It's also 
I think important to not fool our like conflict will exist internal yes, and yeah. external conflict and so to be prepared for how we're going to think about managing that to look back and look on organizational experience on the experiences of other organizations and other people and be in connection but I think like trust don't post no assholes that's a good kind of <laughs> Yeah, I think for us, we talk about something, you know, we could talk about generative conflict, that we're taught mm-hmm. to be afraid of conflict, but actually when you pretend like conflict, it doesn't exist, then it just manifests as like yeah. sitting on your frustrations and then them building or gossip. So how do you like actually create a culture of like, let's talk, let's like hash things out, but do so in a way that holds compassion for each other? Um, but also like allows us to like debate things and disagree directly. Um, and then when it's time to like move like unity in action, you know, so debate, you know, struggle, unity, struggle. And then I think just the other two things I'll name is just like, I think what you said is really important, like good vibes and mm-hmm. joy and mm-hmm. remembering that that like really, that really, really matters. That's, I think sometimes we can be like, oh, the left is supposed to be like serious. Like when I first got mm-hmm. politicized, I was like, I'm only watching documentaries and only reading nonfiction <laughs> books. I'm super serious. Um, and actually like joy is like part of the work and we can be like rigorous, like rigor yeah. and joy aren't um, mutually exclusive. And um, think about in Dream Defenders, like how important the cultural spaces that people like Aja and Phil yeah. and Helen and different people have held over the years that like brought us together to like make music together, make art together, be in community together and how important that was to the, to the process of building trust, being able to move together, being unified, um, being able to just celebrate being alive because mm-hmm. ultimately that's what we're fighting for is life. Well, on that really nice note, Alex Han, Astra Taylor and Rachel Gilmer, thank you very, very much. Alex Hahn is executive director of Indies Times, and before that, executive editor of Convergence magazine. Before the magazines, he served as Midwest political director for Bernie 2020, worked at Bargaining for the Common Good, served as a vice president of SEIU Healthcare Illinois and Indiana, and helped to found United Working Families. Astra Taylor is a writer, filmmaker, frequent guest host on The Dig, and co-founder of The Debt Collective, the world's first debtors union. Her most recent book is The Age of Insecurity, Coming Together as Things Fall Apart. Rachel Gilmer is director of the Healing and Justice Center, a community-based public safety program in Miami working to reduce violence without the carceral system and build power for working-class Black people. Before that, she was longtime co-director of Dream Defenders. And I, Daniel Denver, alongside hosting The Dig, helped found and currently help lead a statewide housing justice and tenant organizing group called Reclaim Rhode Island. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, political power is merely the organized power of one class for oppressing another. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Our associate producer is Jackson Roach. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinator is Sylvia Atwood. Our senior advisors are Theory Frankos and Ben Maybe. 
Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe to this podcast. If it's on iTunes, please also leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. So does telling your friends about the pod, either IRL, on Twitter, whatever. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to help keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge.